last week we started a two-part series and what happened was a bunch of y'all had been talking about the word together and y'all got so excited you called me and told me last week I want you to teach what I want you to teach so last week was the introduction and what we were talking about last week is how much are you using your ask with the Lord there's so many places in scripture that it tells you to ask and I've raised the position with you that I feel like getting in trouble if God gave you the ability to ask for anything and you go to heaven and you're standing at judgment and you never utilized it. And I gave a strong example of Ahaz, which not many people talk about the context of that verse. And that verse is appalling that Ahaz turned down the ask. So that's in Isaiah 7, if you want to read that later. But even in the face of a great enemy, with him being scared, the young king does nothing. So he uses no ask when the Lord throws that out to him. So some people have a nothing faith. Like they're absolutely going to live their life and have a nothing faith. Because they don't utilize the ask. The next person we use was they have just enough faith. And that's 1 Kings 13, and that's Joash. And what he does is he does the bare minimum. He follows instructions well. And it's safe. It's a safe position for you to do exactly what the Bible says. Am I going to take you past that? Mm -hmm. Does it scare you? Yes. Take your stomach away? Uh-huh. But what we're going to use in this context is the nothing faith, the just enough faith, and then the risky faith is Peter. And to me, it's appalling that Peter would ask to do what Jesus did. And it could have been where Peter got in a lot of trouble with the Lord. How dare you to say, can I do what you're doing? Like, for what purpose? Are you trying to glorify yourself? I mean, you look at that, and Peter's question of saying, can I walk on water with you, is actually something that could be considered blasphemous. But it forever changed my understanding of Scripture, the fact that Jesus didn't start saying, that's heresy. Don't think you can do that. If you do this, everyone in the future will think that they can act just like me. But Jesus changed what my theological mindset would have been, and he just said, come. He answered that forever with the word come. So I'm asking you to put that into your doctrine that Jesus said, come when Peter asked such a ridiculous question. I mean, like, it, at what purpose? Are you showing off? Yeah, you're known for it. <laughs> so anyway, I'm going to call that the forward walk on water. Because we were talking about, it seems like the thing about the scripture or the kingdom is everything goes backwards. Like it goes against how your mind would think. It goes different than the world. It goes different than the spirit of the age. So we're going into a forward look. Everybody talks about how we're different than the world. But I want to talk how there's a forward side we've never gone into. So I was leading up to it with talking about the forward walk on water. And the point that's being made was Steph put it into words this morning when she told me, you know, Peter walked on water and this still hadn't become normal for us in 2,000 years. There's no standard set by what Peter did. Not in doctrine do we walk forward, nor in what he did actually walking on the water. But Peter doesn't ask. And he does a grand ask. It's a grand ask. And Jesus accepted it. But then he got angry with Peter. And it wouldn't be for what you thought. It wasn't for asking. It was for not asking him for more. He challenged him for more. Like the anger in Jesus was, if you're going to do it, then do it all the way. Like I would be like thinking Peter had done so much, he had accomplished so much, even for uh, just the ability to know that you could walk a few steps on water with the Lord. That's beautiful. Let's just write a few poems about it, sing a few songs. That's not how Jesus took it. He called it little faith. He told him he doubted. And I've spent a week repenting that if that was doubt, I bet I doubt a whole lot more than I think I am. Because I'm looking at my steps thinking I'm doing very good, and I'm having man's mind about it. Yeah. And I'm not walking in the Spirit. So Peter does a grand ask. And the only thing he gets in trouble for is the fact that he stopped doing 
what he was being enabled to do by the Spirit, what he was being enabled to do by the power of God. So then we went through how many times it says, ask anything in my name. I didn't realize there were that many of those verses. But everybody qualifies them. Oh, my lands, it has to be the will of God. It has to be the word of God. They're basically telling you don't ask anything because you might get outside the parameters. They're so scared. And I don't see those verses being approached by fear. None of them did Jesus couch them. He just put them out there. Is he stretching us? Yes. So there's a backward walk that takes place with religious mindsets. And the backwards walk is telling God no. And it's the spirit of Ahaz where Ahaz just, he literally said, oh, I'm not going to ask God for a sign. I'm not going to do it. And Isaiah looked at him and said, you're weary man and you're wearying God. And sometimes our religious mindset is wearing God out. And with that, we're starting out with where we led up to last week. Because some of the strongest verses in the Bible on anything that's possible, it was done in the case of the failure where the disciples couldn't do what Jesus had told them to do. That I was thinking about the fact that, you know, Peter is my demonstration of asking. And like we said, it never even occurred to the rest of the disciples in the boat to ask such a thing. I'm hitting that point with you. Is it even occurring to you what you can ask God for? What is it that you need that you could ask God for? And see what he says. The ask, the seek, and knock. Is your prayer life a no asking? Or is it like the second illustration of, let's just do the bare necessity? Or does it take risk? You know, what gets us in trouble is too scared of making a mistake. What if I make God mad? What if I make him mad? And we proved that every time he got mad, it was for the opposite reason. I showed you the frustration of Jesus. Reread his frustration. It's not for asking. So both Ahaz and the one talent guy made God mad. The guy who wants instruction, Peter wanted to be like Jesus. So now we're starting part two. And it's called tapping into the power of the age to come. What does that mean? This one, I tell you, goes off the rails. I've never taught anything like it. But I've been waiting. I put little tastes of it. I put little pieces, little, little snippets of this in other Bible studies. But tonight we're going to look at it completely and wholly because we're living in a time that we must go forward and not go backwards. Yes, it's off the rails. In the scripture that this verse is in on tapping into the powers of the age to come. I don't know if you all know what book of the Bible that's in. But it gives you a hierarchy. And you can read them. They all build upon each other. And it's in this context that people get very afraid of losing their faith. And I'll show you because it fits exactly what we're talking about. But it's hitting another level. There are carefully laid out seasons in Christianity, in the historical timeline, in God's dispensations. And this one is the season of the age to come. And there's power in that. So it's carefully laid out. Now, this is where we go with it. Of a, a big question is healing. Is it a not today issue? Is it the dispensation of not today? Has it has to be God's will or you'll not be healed? Not his will at all. Those are positions that people take. If it's not his will, you won't get healed. Or maybe it's not his will of all. Dispensationalism is too little. It's not asking. In dispensationalism, it says prophecy has ceased. Tongues have ceased. Healing has stopped. You know, people don't know exactly when it stopped. Was it stopped with Jesus? Did the last apostle, John, reach out his hand? And with John living such a long age, and as he died, there it ceased. That was the end of all, all miracles. I'm going to challenge this with the thing that's in you that has to take place to please God to have faith. And I don't think that you can change this around in scripture and prove opposite. 
This is not something I've looked at for a week. I've looked at it since I was a child, thinking we are living so far below what God has for us. We're falling so short, and our trouble we're going to get with with God in eternity is not believing him enough. We're going to be proud of three steps we took on the water. Maybe we took them. Maybe we sat in a boat. We're going to be so proud of any little tidbit we threw God, and you're going to miss what God is offering you. And I'm asking you to meet your judgment fully looking at what I'm saying in the face. Take your doctrinal hat off and put your child's heart on and see if I'm telling you the truth. Wrong mindsets. It's how people preach the Old Testament. There's a lot of denominations now they will talk about the Old Testament. You know, all those stories have ceased. You know, it's just kind of like it's done with. Now, my friend, they're doing that theology to the New Testament. Let's just put a period. Let's stop it. Let's not even dare to believe it. Let's just take anything that Jesus preached that's a miracle and make it spiritualized. Spiritualized means you don't take it literally. You don't apply it. So we're in our pulpits every week preaching the miracles of Jesus, but never one time at all, considering inside of ourselves that it is actually an invitation to a miracle. I've wondered if God likes the sermons he hears on Sunday morning. Because he may be saying clearly, I didn't write them. So, I'm challenging you into a place you've never gone before because we're not doing it in the present time. I'm asking you to pull into something that I see hinted at, brushed upon in the future. And I'm going to show you where we go. Ahaz, this man was the ultimate dispensationalist. Ahaz was too good to receive a sign from the Lord, and Isaiah was furious with him. It birthed the most unbelievable sign of all, if y'all remember what it was. Who has heard of the ideal God came up with? Don't think God hadn't enjoyed it. Think of the way he sent his son to the earth. It's in a way you would never think Jesus could come. He hid us in the area of a virgin having a baby. There is not a man in here, if his wife became pregnant outside of himself, that would believe her that it was divine. <laughs> so the Lord shook us at her foundation. <laughs> I'm pregnant. It's divine. <laughs> I promise you I've been faithful. It's the sign that God shows at this. Ahaz, he was the man that refused to ask God the sign that says, where they said, name the height, the breadth, the depth. Go as low as hell or as high as heaven and choose a sign. And Ahaz defied the prophet. And the prophet said, you wear me out and you're wearing God out. No signs. Ahaz is the man that doesn't want any supernatural in his life. He's locked in. In the face of God making him offers, he says no. One of my Bible professors, he said to me, if that gift of the Spirit How'd he put it? If it's from God, he said, even if it comes from God, I don't want to have anything to do with it. Yeah, he said it very strongly. And that's the state where you make something in your heart where you're locked in. And I'm asking you to put this on the table and say, I'm not locked in. Lord, I can at least give you an hour free tonight that I'm not going to lock in and tell you what I believe. I'm going to ask you what I should believe. And that's where I'm asking to take you. You know, Ahaz was our first one. Joash was the guarded one, the careful one. But Peter started right, but he went down. <laughs> he sunk. And so we're beginning with Hebrews 6, verse 5. And that's where we find the concept of tapping into the power of the age to come. We're going the wrong way with our theology. I want to show you some examples from the Bible. These are audacious, but it's a concept that I'm hitting on because if we really tried them today, people would be highly offended by it. But how about if I told you that there's an example of someone coming up with a better idea than Jesus or improving upon him? 
or a man who figured out a shortcut for him that, that Jesus didn't think of. you got to be kidding. Well, it's in Luke, Luke 7. And so when Jesus had finished saying all the things to these people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. And there was a centurion servant who his master highly valued. And he was sick and about to die. You don't want to lose a good servant. You'll have to go to work. The centurion, he loved this guy. He was one of his best. This theology is hilarious. The way that Luke does this one. So they came to Jesus and they pleaded earnestly with him. Listen to this Jewish way of thinking. Look, they come to Jesus and they negotiate. Okay, we know he's a Gentile. But this man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation. You know, he's a Zionist and he built our synagogue. I mean, that is hilarious. He's given money to the Jewish cause. Uh, he deserves to have his servant healed. Aren't people funny? Well, let's not spend time in scripture going there. But Jesus went with them, and he wasn't far from the house, and the guy comes out, and he does it with all humility. That's why no one takes account of this in the verses. But he says, Lord, don't trouble yourself. Now, Matthew tells it a little bit different of how he put it, but the guy offers that Jesus says, okay, your servant's healed. I will go to your house, and I shall heal your servant. And the guy tells Jesus, no. And then the guy gives Jesus a teaching parable. Now, I'm so used to Jesus giving us a teaching parable, but the guy goes, well, it's like soldiers. If I give an order, he says, and I tell them to do this, they do it. I'm both in authority and under authority. He's explaining this to Jesus. But based on this idea of what soldiers do, he said, there's no need for you to come to my house. Just give the order and it will be obeyed. So he tells Jesus, you can take a shortcut. It's not necessary to come to my house. It was Jesus' ideal to go to the guy's house. And the guy tells him, no. Jesus says, this is the greatest faith I've seen. Why? It saved him a lot of steps. <laughs> but to deem it, what is only said a couple of times in Scripture, that this is the greatest faith, to me strikes me as funny. That what Jesus called the greatest faith was someone figuring out that Jesus could boss something. That he could be right here and he could speak to it. And just like a soldier obeyed the centurion, sickness had to obey Jesus. He realized Jesus had the power to boss. So he put two and two together. He tells Jesus, look, I, I figured it out. Soldiers do it this way. You can do it this way. You don't have to come to my house. Don't trouble yourself. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed, and he turned to the crowd, and he says, I tell you, I have not found such great faith in all of Israel. And this guy in Israel. And then the men who had been sent returned to the house, and sure enough, the servant was completely healed. Wow. Let's not push it too far, but it is a lot of fun to see a guy advising Jesus, giving Jesus a parable, and giving Jesus a shortcut and receiving a ceiling. But let's move on to the gentle slopes of real faith. Let's go a little further. Shall we move? This one is completely opposite the dispensationalists. You know, the dispensationalists, what they want to do is give God an out. To tell you God won't do it, it's stopped. We're dealing here with these three a present time stories. We're not talking about future here. We're talking about this was in the here and now. What about a concept of getting a healing when it's not God's will to heal you? Does that bug you? What was Jesus' emotions when people tried to get a healing out of him? When? Do you want to say he didn't want to give it? Or how would we want to phrase that? So, number one, when he said no, they changed Jesus' mind on something. The first guy, he changed Jesus' mind on something. He grasped the concept and he rerouted Jesus. But this one's a little bit stronger, this number two. Jesus tells the lady no, and she changes his mind. Oh. He's against you getting healed, and you change his mind. 
I'll tell you for sure that's not the definition of dispensationalism. <laughs> that is not what anyone would call dispensationalism. But let's see how he reacts to it. I mean, I just never thought in theology you should tell Jesus no for any reason. Well, let's look at it. And Jesus went away from here and withdrew to Tars, Sidon. And a Canaanite woman from that region came to him and began to cry out, Lord, have mercy on me, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. And like we've said, some of you can relate to that passage. <laughs> but he did not answer her a word. He ignores her. And his disciples came and implored him and said, Look, Jesus, don't just ignore. Send her away. Take the next step. Don't just ignore this woman. But he says to this woman something very unusual. But he answered and he said, I was only sent to the lost sheep of Israel. No, oh, she's not finished. I've cut you out. It's um, no miracle today, son. You're the wrong skin color. This is racial. You have any mixed blood in you? Maybe we could count that. I'm not sent to your type. Hmm, this is getting better. People don't preach this. I don't know why. Such a good little charming passage. But she came and she began to bow down to him and said, Lord, help me. Oh, if he's not finished yet? But he answered and he said, It's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. I mean, you just, you get that he told her a, a no and a double no. <laughs> I just, I don't know why we don't do these heartwarming stories. But they're flying in our face of what makes you stop with God. They're flying in your face. They're put in your Bible for you to consider them seriously. Why, if something shocks you, do you not spend time <coughs> studying them? I've always felt like my favorite sermons are those on scriptures that are the most difficult to understand. And here we have it. Oh, it's not in there once, it's in there twice. Just let's make sure it's established with two or three witnesses. For the Canaanite woman, it was her daughter. For the Roman centurion, it was his servant. And they both changed God's mind. Both of them. Oh, let's talk a minute with our theology. What about sovereignty? God is in control. You know, either your relationship is built like that on your theology, your religious mindset, or it's built on a relationship with God. And I'm going to say this woman found relationship with Jesus. And he's letting you know it trumps all this religious verbal garbage we spit out of our mouth. Put yourself in the place if this had been a dispensationalist from the theology department coming over and they heard a, a no from Jesus. They would have run right out of there and written three books on when God says no. Published them when God says no. When God says no, but he says double no. <laughs> but that's not what your scripture tells you. Why not stick to scripture? Did I promise you something fun? Let's go to the next one. We'll leave that lady hanging for a little bit. The next woman. Now for the strongest verse on if it be thy will to heal. This is the epitome scripture on the swap of wills. And there was a woman who had been suffering from a hemorrhage for 12 years, came up behind him and touched the fringe of his cloak. And she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will get well. If you want to look at someone who runs as far away from if it be thy will as you can, get to this woman in Matthew 9. It's one of the best examples. She was so sure of God's willingness to heal. Can I speak like this? She snuck a miracle <laughs> out of Jesus. Jesus healed a lot of people. He was approached by siblings, friends, concerned parents, and the diseased people themselves. In some cases, he deliberately sought out those who needed his touch. But in this one, Jesus doesn't even know it's happening. The story blows the question of willingness out of the water because healing here was not even his idea. In fact, he was appalled by it. He said, who touched me? And they said, you're crazy. Everyone's touched you in the last five minutes. What do you mean? Who They're pressing on you. No, I'm asking who touched me. You can't tell. His tone is terse. You can't tell exactly what he's meaning, but he's asking who, 
who pushed on me? And they're going, if you're concerned about feeling claustrophobic, they're all <coughs> pushing. Interesting. In Luke's version in chapter 8, we learn that Jesus only knew the healing happened because he felt something leave his body. Who touched me? He felt power leave it. Now, what's interesting, she swears she just touched the robe, but he felt power go out his robe. <laughs> Since they were in the middle of a pressing crowd, the disciples countered that just about everybody, that wasn't the answer. He wasn't satisfied. He wasn't going to listen to them telling him everybody's doing it. He just kept asking the one question to get the answer he wanted. He wanted her to identify herself. You could make a case for this healing being the woman's will and not Jesus' will. At the time it happened, because he didn't even see it coming, nor did he know who it was who had received it. She revealed herself to him, admitted it, and it pleased him. Jesus said, go, keep your healing, be well, leave in peace. You interrupted the man. I was on the way to raise the dead, but you interrupted. He had been willing all along. He was so full of power that healing just slipped out of him as though it was an overflowing force. It was in his clothes. It is an incredible, beautiful concept and is so different than how we approach Jesus. Theologically scared, she approached with faith. I'm going to speak to you as a dispensationalist. This goes contrary to everything that is said. Because you can make cases for all three of these guys. We act as though the gifts of God are only given at his whim when we ask nicely enough. She approached knowing that her name was on a miracle and all she had to do was reach for it. Are you that sure of God? Because if you're not, maybe you don't know him. You haven't got close enough to him. I'll never forget Max Lucado's words when he said that the leper approached him and he didn't know if Jesus would kill him for approaching him being a leper. He just dared to just go up to the man. He said, I didn't care if I lived or I died. But he said, when I got close enough to him, he said, I realized he hated that leprosy more than I did. I'm calling the dispensationalists, come closer. You've got to look in his eyes. You're looking at theology. You're closing doors that God doesn't close. And these people were daring. And if you don't have a daring faith, you will never please God. Yeah. You know, people always say it wasn't God's will to be healed, so that person doesn't get healed. I told you this would go backwards. I said it will feel backwards to you. But sneak, sneak and not plan to ever tell him. Like, Jesus, I want to just use your gift and not approach you. I don't want to even ask you. I mean, that just messes everything up when you talk like that. Are you saying that you're going to just pull one off on Jesus and he never even know about it? Did you know that it says that people begin doing this ministry of, of touching his robe from there on out? Like, once one person got it that way, they all were trying it. And it said people were getting healed. I think Mark captured that. So yeah, it feels different to you. Yes, it feels backwards. But sneak. Yes, he healed someone when it wasn't his will. It's the opposite. Go forwards. We won't even approach the woman he was telling, no, 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 no. His feelings, your feelings. What was Jesus' emotion on this? In Matthew 15, 28, the woman that had a demon-possessed daughter, what did Jesus say to her? Again, he uses the word that he doesn't use for anyone else. He said, Oh, woman, your faith is great. Like, he changed his mind. She changed his mind. Like, it went from, no, you can't have it. You're not of the house of Israel. It went from, no, you can't have it because of the fact that, um, uh, you know, this is for children. This isn't for your type. And now he switched his mind. They would say that that was schizophrenic theology right here. I mean, what's he doing? But he tells her, your faith is great. It shall be done for you as you wish. As you wish. It's not talking about what he wills, it's what you will. Have I blasphemed? Some circles, yes. Have I read the Bible? Yes. I quoted a verse. It shall be done as you wish. 
God did it this way because you're not going to enter heaven by your head. You're going to enter it through your heart as a child. Sometimes we miss heaven by a few inches from our head, intellectual, to our heart. Now, Mark is even funnier. Mark 7 is even funnier what he does with the story. Try to understand this theologically if you had to really do your exegesis on this one little sentence. In Mark 7, he says, okay, because of your answer, you got your healing. Because you were funny, because you said a witty little statement, I didn't know that you could get deliverance for being funny. But she says to him, the funniest statement of all, dogs can't have this food, only children. And she goes, well, even the puppies lick up crumbs. And she said such a profound, funny statement that Mark says it's her answer that got her the healing. So if you're funny enough with God, he'll heal you. If you're humorous enough, is that how it works with the Lord? Is it? Why else did he change his mind? It tells you in scripture, I'm not lying to you. Because of this answer, he said, go your way. I'm going to heal you. I hope this knocks down every spiritual, sacred cow that you have. Because of the fact that Jesus says to the woman, it's your answer that made the difference. So if she had given a different answer, these Jews, I can't stand them. My gosh, I'm so offended. I'm just telling you, I wouldn't ask for a Jew. I wouldn't ask a Jew for another thing on earth. That's just how they are. They're so stingy. I mean, they only think about other Jews. You think she'd gotten her miracle? Well, you know, he just doesn't want me to have it. It's no healing. He probably can't even, he didn't even understand these things. He's a man. You know how men are. I've never liked men anyway. It's just a gender thing here. I mean, you just feel all the different angers of races and cultures and genders and theologians. No one preaches it. They dare not. But Jesus and the lady, they had a little fun together. And her answer pleased him. And she got something that he said was not for her. I'm telling you, dispensationalism is backwards to the heart of God. It's going the wrong way. You're stubborn and locked down. And God can't, he can't give you anything. Your heart's not right. Let me tell you your feelings. That's Jesus' feelings. He liked her answer. He said their faith was great. He thanked the guy for making him not have to walk to the village. But how you feel inside? When you do such a thing, you feel on edge. You feel like, I don't want to cross this line. <laughs> it doesn't feel right to me. Can you imagine how Peter thought when he thought, I'm going to ask if I can jump out the boat? Like you feel this, I don't know if I should even approach God with this idea. The lady bleeding, ah, I'm really not supposed to be out in public. I mean, scripture does say if a woman is bleeding not to go out in the public, I'm actually breaking scripture. Centurion, you feel this terrible feeling inside when you take a risk. And most people, they think they're walking in faith and they're walking by their feelings. Because faith has risk. You don't know what God will say to you. You're taking a chance. But we found out last time with the one talent guy, these were the words on his mouth. I didn't do anything, God, because I was afraid I'd be wrong. I didn't do anything. In fact, I, didn't, I wasn't careless with it and just lost it or left it somewhere. I carefully wrapped it up to give you back exactly what you gave me. And the Lord said, I don't want it until it's been used. I don't want it till you risk it. But I was scared I'd be wrong. I knew it about you. You're, I knew you were a hard man. I knew you wanted more than what you sowed. Your heart in your heart. He didn't like his answer. 
you feel on edge. When you're investing someone else's money, you feel nervous about it. That's why the Lord said, I, I start you out on money that um, someone else's, that's worldly, so that one day I give you true riches. Because I've got to trust you on this before I can trust you on this. You might not be bringing the right heart to the Lord. You know, these are the times that it's called great faith. What has happened to us? Somehow we have a lay down and die mentality. We take a no so easy. We've thought no before we even approached him. I know you don't want to give this to me. What do you think he thinks like that? What if your kid came to you bleeding, hurting? I know you don't want to help me, Dad. Does that warm your heart? Do you think you're more spiritual than God? Because you relegate that to God, that that's what he's saying. And yet human compassion would never do that. We'd be put in jail for acting like what we think God's like. We're so afraid that we will ask God something he doesn't want to give us. I'm going to say, grow up. We are very unsure of God. We don't think he wants to heal us. We think that we want to be healed more than he wants to heal us. I think that's sacrilegious to feel like that we want to be healed more than he wants to heal us. He may not be pleased with our heart. Why did he put these in the Bible? Well, he definitely put them in there and didn't have to worry about it. No one's going to preach them, especially say these things. Small faith is stifled by unbelief and fear, while great faith is amplified by boldness. Take a chance. Risk your whole relationship on God. You might be surprised. It might be like two lovers. Lovers like risk. Small faith makes decisions based on what is possible for humans while great faith makes decisions based on what's possible for God. Let me speak to you as a theologian. Rigid rules, cessation. Rigid, rigid rules. Preached for 2,000 years. And we wonder why we're in the mess we are theologically as a church that's powerless. Why Jesus said, will I find faith on this earth when I come? And he's just told you, if you got a judge that doesn't like God or man, bug the snot out of him. We're not defining faith right. We only see faith as hope we make it to heaven and escape all the problems on earth. It's nothing to do with what Jesus said. Confining mindsets of dispensationalism has wrecked our theology departments and our pulpits. You need to repent if you've taught it to others because it says if you keep someone from entering the kingdom. It's one thing for you to keep yourself, but to keep someone else. Or it is doctrines of devils to teach God as other than what scripture shows him of how Jesus healed the sick and his love and his compassion. Don't think your human compassion is more. It's arrogance and it's pride. And it's what Ahaz did. No healing is for day is what he told him. He told him no and they went forward. This is where we are. These people tapped into the powers of the age to come. If you aren't going forward for a long period, you're gonna start slipping back. Once you've started work, you have to have motion forward in theology, in practice. And Jesus said to them, no one after having laid his hand on the plow, no one after looking on the things behind is fit for the kingdom of God. No one is fit for the kingdom of God. If you start looking behind you, Luke 9:62. Think of Lot's wife. It's like the children of Israel looking back to Egypt. It reminds me of George Washington and all the other people. Google deserters. If you're in wartime, what happens to deserters? Before the Civil War, deserters from the army were flogged. After 1861, they tattooed you and branded you if you deserted. The maximum U.S. penalty for desertion in wartime still remains the same, it's death. Although the last time it was applied was they killed a guy in World War II for deserting. Eddie Slavic, sounds Polish. This is what we're looking at, it's shrinking back, it's deserting. Tapping into Hebrews 6, 4 through 6, you can remember it because of Brownwood's area code 6, 4, 6. 
is a forward motion. It's context. I shall read you the context. It's one of the scary verses about going backwards. It's the verse where everybody comes up with the idea you're going to lose your salvation. Have you ever thought, have I committed a sin that I could lose my salvation? The fear of losing it? I think most of us have. It's that context. But notice it. It reminds you of the children of Israel looking back into Egypt. Guess what? They died. <laughs> All of them. We don't want one of them in there. It's the penalty for desertion. <laughs> Hebrews 6, starting verse 5. If these people have been enlightened by the Holy Spirit, tasted of the good word of God, tasted of the goodness of the good word of God, gone into the deeper things, and tasted of the powers of the age to come. I like mystery. If you've done these things of having the word come alive to you, the Holy Spirit enhance everything, that you're moving in all those areas of your life, you tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then you've fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up for public contempt. You see the contrast? When you should be going forward, you go backwards. When you should be going deeper, you go the wrong direction. That's what gets you in trouble. When you should be moving towards the power of the age to come, you're shrinking back and you're falling short. You can't fall away. That's what I said. This verse isn't for everyone. This isn't something to make everyone fear. It's only for those that have gone to a certain place with the Lord. You can't go back. That's why I don't push this on people. That's why I don't push you to go further with the Holy Spirit. I'm not a salesman trying to peddle something. There's a responsibility to it. And that's called no back doors. Going backwards, Hebrews has a lot to say on this subject. Hebrews 10, 38 and 39. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, I take no pleasure in him. God takes no pleasure in you shrinking. But we are not those among who shrink back to, what does it say? We're not those who shrink back to, oh, surely that's not the right word. But we're not those who shrink back to, oh, it does, destruction. Why do people have bad things happen to them? Destruction. This is a serious word here. People never blame themselves, take responsibility. Oh, this happened to me because I was shrinking back. I entered into steal, kill, destroy. Destruction, shrinking back. But of those who have faith for the safekeeping of the soul, shrink back. What it means is becoming as little as possible. Making God in you smaller. And shrinking back. It's the context of Hebrews. Don't fall away. Don't shrink back. So, what's the boldest move you can make? If you're not supposed to shrink back, I'm asking, what is the boldest thing you can do? I think Peter found it. I think the Syrophoenician lady found it. I think, do the crazy. Take the roof off the house and lower your friend in. Why not do the boldest possible thing you could possibly do? We're living in times for it. What about using the front door? You know, only in wartime should you use um, a window and not the front door. I'll give you Joel 2.9. You can write that down. It tells you you're thinking like a thief and a robber. Jesus finishes saying that in John 10. He says, only a thief comes in a way other than the front door. So with sheep and with God, backdoor mentalities are not pleasing to him. You've got to walk in the front door with your conversation with people. The boldest you can say it. When you're gathering sheep up 
front door. Jesus says it's, it's the ways of a thief. Straightforward. Let's bump it up. Hebrews 4, 16. Access to God is front door. You shall come before the throne of mercy, the throne of grace to receive mercy and grace in the time of need when you walk boldly before God's throne. Hebrews has a lot to say about go forward. Don't go back or I'll shoot you. Go forward. <laughs> Those people didn't go home when they were told no. They stuck to him. You know, one way I solved the fact of fear and going to hell. I had a lady drive me home once. She goes, you fear going to hell? I told the Lord a, a parable story. I said, Lord, if I had someone I greatly, 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 greatly loved, and I told them, meet me out here, and we're going to go on a vacation together, and they didn't show up, I said, Lord, I wouldn't just go ahead and leave them and tell them, sorry, you didn't show up. And why would I not just haul off and leave them if they were late? Because I wouldn't enjoy the vacation without them. Because I love them. I said, Lord, would you love me enough not to leave me? If I being a human wouldn't leave someone I love, would you love me enough to not spend eternity without me? No matter all my horrible sins, all the times I've failed you, all the things that make me afraid, would you not pull off and leave me? Would eternity not be the same to you without me? Can we have that kind of relationship? You know, you can solve it with your heart. And people are going mad out there thinking they've made the unpardonable sin by trying to solve it with their head, with a list of whatever they try to do to please him. When really all he wants to hear you say is, like the Syrophoenician woman, call me what you want. I'll lick the crumbs. I want to be with you. The motion of the age to come. The bold excess. Oh, I love this verse. It brings it all together. The time we live in, the prophetic moment, the harvest moment, a time for the future. Amos 9.12, it says, Behold, like the word, behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake, <laughs> when the plowman shall overtake the reaper, and the one who treads the grapes will overtake him who sows the seed. We are having a merging together of future and now. The seasons are being pushed together. It's a prophetic moment. It's a harvest moment. It's a time in the future. Behold, days are coming. And it gives us the context of the verse. There's two very different understandings of the word overtake. How should we interpret it? Is it overtake or bring together? I'm going to say both. For the treader of grapes overtakes the sower of seed because they are growing so fast. But where the plowman overtakes the reaper, this is something where all of a sudden the one planting the seed and the one harvesting the seed are running into each other. That's what it looks like. To bring together, to draw near, if overtake is actually draw near, bring together, it feels that the text is indicating a unity between the people of different roles laboring together and enjoying the fruits of the labor together. It is overtaking and it is drawing near together. The plowing, the reaping seasons will overlap. The plowman will meet the reaper. This is keeping in the phrase that one shearing the grape will meet the one who plants them. And then it says, and the mountains will drip the juice. Context of the verse is, in that day I will restore the fallen tent of David. I will repair its gaps. I will restore its ruins and I will rebuild it as in the days of old. Context after it says, I will restore my people Israel from captivity and they will rebuild and inhabit the ruined cities. Did you know what this is telling you? This is telling you 
that 1948 is when this prophecy came to be fulfilled. And if those are the days that this is taking place, even more so now, as it says, behold, days are coming when these two are gonna take place. This is a movement in the prophetic realm. It's why go backwards when you can go forward into this age to come? For this realm that I'm living is coming into contact with the realm that's to come. If it was pulling down in the time of the book of Hebrews, it's even more so into this realm, into this time. You know, you hear these arguments all about reaching into the next realm where Jesus says you'll do the works that he did in John 14, 12. And everybody's like, and even greater. So the realm of the works that Jesus did and even greater come together, doing the power of the age now with the power of the age to come. In Acts, look it up, 28. Who is Acts 28? It'd be you. Acts comes to an abrupt end. Acts 28 is us. We are the age to come. What are we doing? Would our life look like Acts went downhill? <laughs> because Haggai tells us the latter glory of this house will be greater than the former glory. What is happening? I think the, the, the former glory is much stronger than what's... We're not even to the, to the latter glory. We're not even to the point of where Jesus said, you'll do what I did. Period. Stop. Don't go into greater. Don't even try to discuss it theologically. We're not even to the point of doing what he did. The reaper has to catch up. He's the bridegroom who saves the best for last. No wonder the virgins were in trouble for not doing at least what was expected. He shuts the door in their face. He saves the best for last. Y'all, don't downplay the Bible during this time. It shuts the door. Don't tell yourself what you can get away with not doing. This is not the time for that. It says in the last day they'll hold to a form of godliness but deny the power. The word dunamis there, power, is such a powerful word. Like you can't even matter. We're into the greater and the better. We've had so much, but we have not even begun to tap into that realm of the power to the age to come. At least get up to the present speed. In this... You see this going backwards and forth where Jesus, you see this play take place all the time where Jesus came to earth to forgive sins. That our sins weren't forgiven until Jesus dies on that cross for us. But guess what he was doing? He was bringing the present to the fore because he went around forgiving sins constantly before the cross. My count six times in four stories. And then Paul says Jesus was forgiving sins. And what it did was in Matthew 9, 7, it shocked them. And they said, how is this authority given to man that he can do this? Of forgiven sins. And Jesus goes, well, what's easier? Look, that guy looks pretty messed up. Is it easier for me to heal him or forgive sins? What's easier? This is before the cross. Notice Jesus was operating into it. He was tapping into the next age. Doing things before the time, before the atonement, before he had paid the penalty. Authority, before authority was placed in it. Hebrews 9.22 gives you a verse that contradicts this. I want you to think of this. Hebrews 9.22 indicates forgiveness cannot occur without blood. There is no forgiveness of sin apart from blood. How was Jesus doing this? Well, first of all, there's a foreshadowing of this in in John 3, 14, the serpent was raised in the desert, telling in the Old Testament that before Jesus was raised on the cross, the serpent was raised on the pole, and it gave us a shadow or foreshadowing of what was going to happen. It always does it this way. There is always forerunner. You are a forerunner to God's glory. You're a forerunner to his power. This is what he's waiting for, is the demonstration. And yet he's saying, will I even find faith on this earth? Where it says this is incompatible with the Christian view that forgiveness is possible without blood sacrifice, John the Baptist preached the gospel, repentance, and the forgiveness of sin even before Jesus began his public ministry. Why? He was tapping into the next dispensation. Now hopefully you're with me that we have taken Tannerite and blown up dispensationalism by going backwards 
And I'm saying I believe in dispensationalism by going forward. For this is the blood of my covenant as he held it in his hands. He said, drink. It has been poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Matthew 26, 28. Y'all, your dispensation is a foretaste. It is like the symbolic act of a snake on the pole. It got people healed. It's John the Baptist preaching the forgiveness of sin before Jesus had started his ministry. And it is the communion elements that Jesus gave saying this represents my body and my blood before he had even given it. Because with the Lord, the plowman and this, the harvester and the guy who plants the seeds are meeting together. The back door is shut. Burn your bridges. Go forward with your faith. We are getting into realms that it said the prophets longed to look. This is what they were waiting for. This is what Jesus did on the cross. It says because he was poured out his soul to death, he was numbered with the transgressor, yet he bore the sins of many, but yet he makes intercession for the transgressors. In Isaiah 53, 12, it was the cross. He was already into what he was going to do. The prophecy was out there. Once it was already spoken, it was there. It was available for access. He was pulling into the next realm. And it says that the reason he healed the sick in Matthew 8, 16 was to fulfill the prophecy in Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 said he'll die on the cross. Jesus was using it before the cross to heal the sick. He's quoting in Matthew 8 a scripture about the cross, but healing before the cross. It's powers of the age to come. He was already into the next dispensation. John the Baptist was tapping in. Everyone was moving forward. When Jesus did that, he breathed on the Holy Spirit. He said, receive the Holy Spirit in order to be able to forgive sins. Get out there. Forgive sins. Get people to get off the sin and the consequences. We aren't even doing the powers of the age to come. Someone asked this question that was pointed towards me. Was it like a mantle passing to us as Jesus was leaving? For the Holy Spirit, it said, wait in Acts 1, 4, for what the Father has promised, the Holy Spirit. Don't go out until you have what the, the Father has promised. This is before the dispensation of the Holy Spirit was poured out with the gifts. Jesus was already healing the sick and casting out demons. Before that, the disciples were doing it. Add one in that really bothers you. Not just Peter doing it, but Judas doing it. Jesus, Jesus got other people doing before sending them out. Acting like the Holy Spirit made them like before it had even been distributed. Jesus was in the transition period between the Old and New Testament that would be ratified with his death, but he already had them acting like it. It does do an unusual work, but I'm telling you, you can go out in the power of a dispensation of the age to come. I'm into dispensations. Don't give me rules. It's heart. And they had heart. Yeah, there's something to be said for it. Healing before the Old Testament. We're not just talking about Jesus and the disciples healing, but you look at the categories and you can name it. The Old Testament was acting in the powers of the age to come. Category. Did he not do miracles in nature? Oh yeah, Elijah commands it to rain, calls fire down from heaven. Were there animals ever commissioned to do his will? Yes, Jesus did that. But there was Balaam's mule and ravens fed. Healings, Naaman was healed of leprosy, multiplying the food in the Old Testament. Elisha multiplies the bread and some's left over. Oh, look at this one, translated in the, in the spirit. Well, you got Jesus and Philip, both did that, but Elijah was kind of, um, they couldn't catch him. <laughs> he kept disappearing on them. Ascended into heaven, Enoch, Elijah, raising the dead. Oh, they did raising the dead in the Old Testament. Wow. Elijah, the boy Elisha. Well, how about Elisha's bones, the dead man? Every other miracle except one that I'll leave off that list was done in the Old Testament because we're into dispensations. 
We're into getting into the next realm. That is meaning that Elijah and Elisha were getting into the powers of the age to come all the time. They look more spiritual than us that are in the New Testament, claiming the understanding of both Old and New Testament, the power of the Holy Spirit and Jesus' ministry. They're operating in more. How can they do this? The realm of the Spirit. You know, in Luke 9, everyone was marveling at what Jesus said. He said to his disciple, listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. The Son of Man is going to be delivered in the hands of men. But they didn't understand what he meant. It was hidden from them. They didn't grasp it. And they were scared to ask him questions. So they began to argue, what would they fight about? Well, who's the greatest? <laughs> well, the context of this verse was even while the boy was coming, the demon threw him to the ground. He came into a convulsion. Jesus rebuked the impure spirit, healed the boy, gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. And while everyone was marveling at Jesus, he said, listen to what I'm about to tell you. But instead, they'd rather argue. Now, 51's the kicker. As the day of his ascension approached, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Now, I don't know if you're catching this. He's telling them. But you would think it would say, as the day of his crucifixion approached. No. He said, as the day of his ascension approached, he set his face. What operating in the powers of the age to come does for you, it sets your face in the future. It sets you on the victory. The crucifixion was a piece. It was a part. But he set his face on the victory. Where crucified, and whatever he did in those three days, raised in resurrection, ascending to the Father. As the day of his ascension passed, you know, you see in Hebrews 12 too, because of the joy set before him, he was able to endure the cross. Psalm 22, it says, because he saw the generations that were yet to follow that would be saved because of what he was going to do. He, it seemed he had to get the suffering under his feet. A decision was made and he set his, his face in the future. He knows what he has to do and he set his face, it says, resolutely to do it. And he tells them, and it doesn't register with him before the time sets up. So I would say part of powers of the age to come is seeing your face in the future. Where does your faith belong? What is your ultimate destiny, purpose? What are you made to do? Maybe you're on the earth because you're not finished doing what you're called to do. Punch anybody that's not doing what they're called to do. Seeing your face in the future, lay hold of the victory and work the steps backwards. Maybe it's the Embraer. I have no alternative. The message to Garcia, I have to be able to do this, obtain it. Maybe it's Matthew 15, 24, but he answered and said, I was only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Maybe the Canaanite woman with the afflicted daughter saw her face in the future. Maybe she was seeing the victory Maybe she was seeing past the no, not your time. You're not my mission field. You should be fed dog food, not children's bread. And she got there. Maybe where we're messing up is we are looking back, which is forbidden. And we're not setting our face for our ascension. What objective do you want? Then working backwards towards what you want. Like one time I had a huge problem. I couldn't figure out what to do. I told Steph, she goes, what is it you want to accomplish? And I explained way out here. And so she gave me steps of what to do to get there. I work backwards from my face in the future. This is the realm of prophecy. This is what Jesus did. With every dispensation, it's more, not less. With every wave of glory, the promises don't weaken. Hebrews tells us it's a better covenant with better promises. We're going forward. Is this personally true for you? Are you making use of the forward realm? I'm going to end with this verse. The powers of the age to come, it's in the beyond area. Getting into realms beyond our asker. Getting into realms beyond our thinker. Think of the power of God as, what do you need? Beyond what you can ask. Beyond what you can think. Do you have the verse in mind? Ephesians 3. 
because we make it all be on God. Oh, 18 has that beautiful language. His love is better than the breadth, the width, the length, the depth. I mean, you look up these words, profundity, the mystery, the height, elevation, attitude. The love of Christ, which passes all comprehension, and comprehension says even beyond science. Oh, we're going there. But then it says, verse 19, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above, above all, beyond all, that we can ask or think. This is what I'm saying. This is getting into realms beyond your asker. Realms above your thinker. It's getting beyond what you can imagine, what you can ask. But it doesn't stop there. Above what we can ask or think, and we stop there and say, God, it's all on you. It is. But he says back at you. According to the power, the dunamis, that the word we're looking at, that force, that violent, aggressive, assertive push that works within us. It's a partnering. You can't get into the realm beyond what you ask or think without getting into the realm according to the power that works within you. In other words, it's in relationship to the power that works within you. It's limited to the power that works within you. You've got to get into the realm that has no limits by pushing into the realm of the power that works within you. And that's where we get into the place of the impossible, where the Lord lives and he's inviting you, saying there's even much more to come from here. Amen.